Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Mimiverse Monthly Audiocast. As always, I am your host, writer-director Christopher R. Mim, and I want to know, are you there? Are you listening? Because I am speaking to you. Yes, you. Directly to you. Because you're important. You mean something to me. You keep me going. You keep me focused. You. You, oh special one. You who are listening to this right now. You are important. Thank you for being you. And thank you for listening to me yammer on month after month about all the things that I am doing and creating and trying to do and occasionally failing. But that's the thing. If you don't fail, you'll never learn any lessons. The truth is... The best lessons are learned through failure. Success is awesome, don't get me wrong. When I find it, I'll let you know what it's like. But failing and learning go hand in hand. You'll never learn anything until you fail at it. And once you have, you can look back and say, okay, what did I do wrong? What did I do right? How can I do it better next time? Which I think I've done if you look at my films. I think they grow and change and get better. Maybe not always the writing, You can't always write a great script every single time, but you can at least try. And you can at least try to get better and write more effective scripts and try to improve your craft. Anyway, how are you today? How are things? How have you been? What have you been up to? I have been busy. The Mimiverse is soon to become a very, very busy place. For those of you who maybe do not follow what is going on on Facebook or on the website, stuporia.com, principal photography of where Skeeto Nazi Hunter is complete. I am currently in the process of putting the giant jigsaw puzzle of footage together into a coherent something that you will be able to enjoy for years and years to come. I have to say, I'm quite happy with how it's coming together. This script feels a little bit like a departure from some of my early work, and not in a bad way, in a good way. I feel like after making the first ten movies, and after making Danny Johnson Saves the World in particular, which was very much a different type of movie than uh, some of my other films, and yet still within my wheelhouse, I feel like uh, going into the next ten years, I don't necessarily want to do the one thing I've been doing quite a bit, and that is... Picking something from the past, a giant bug movie, perhaps, or a zombie movie, or whatever. In the past, I I would always choose something that I hadn't tried, a a trope or a this or that. And I I would make a movie around that. I haven't done a giant bug movie, so I made a giant spider movie. I hadn't done a haunted house movie, so I did a haunted house movie. I think for the next 10 years, I want to try and create slightly more original works, which is to say, I would like to stay within my genre, my chosen playground, but instead of playing on the same equipment in that playground, I want to build some new equipment. I think I started that with Danny Johnson Saves the World, which, if you're listening to this, is available on DVD and Blu-ray, and if you don't own it, you should go to stuporia.com 
click on merchandise, or visit Amazon.com and pick up a copy right now. But with Danny Johnson Saves the World, I made a Muppet movie. There is no such thing as an actual 1950s Muppet movie. Now, some people don't like it. And to those people, okay, maybe you'll like one of my other ones. I know everyone won't like all of them. Some people are bigger fans of The Giant Spider or It Came From Another World or whatever. Some folks do love them all just because maybe they're a little more forgiving than some. And some other folks have their favorites. I know Danny Johnson Saves the World is one of those films that there doesn't seem to be a lot of middle ground. Either you love it or you hate it. And maybe you don't hate it, you just, it's not for you. And honestly, that's okay. If you remember Twilight, the sparkly vampire werewolf series of books that was turned into movies that was huge about, what was that, about 10 years ago? Maybe? People used to get all down on Twilight for being so crappy. And maybe it is. Maybe the quality is not there. But what I did notice was that the people who often would go after it the most and were the most negative were the people that weren't the quote-unquote target audience. If you weren't a teenage girl or a teenage girl inside, chances were you didn't like Twilight. But that's because it was not made for you. It was not created to entertain you. It was created to entertain that group of people. And so go ahead and criticize it all you want. It made What's-Her-Name, who wrote it, uh, very rich. And I know getting rich off something isn't exactly a measure of quality. However, it hit a nerve with a certain very large population of the world, so you can't say it wasn't successful regardless of what you may think of its quality. Now, what does Twilight have to do with Danny Johnson? Just this. If you don't like Danny Johnson because it's the Muppet movie, it may just not be for you. I made it for kids, and the kid in all of us. And if you're not a kid at heart, perhaps you it's just not something for you. But the entire point of all that, before I really start to talk about what's going on, is that going forward, I still want to make... 1950s-style B-movies, of course. But I want to start creating more original works, and I think I started that with Danny Johnson Saves the World. And I think I continue that with Where Skeeto Nazi Hunter, because this is a very unique film. And I don't know if it's necessarily what everyone's expecting it to be. I think there might be a small group of people out there who are expecting it to be not what it's going to end up being. It actually ends up being a little more of a drama. It ends up being more about this person dealing with this horrible thing that happened to them and being put into this situation where they want revenge. It's a revenge movie. But it's also about this character dealing with this horrible trauma. That's happened to them. And then, of course, it goes completely off the rails and gets insane by the end of it. Because it's it's me, and that's how I... That's just the way I write, I guess. Anyway, let's talk about where the process is now. I've completed principal photography, and if you don't know movie terms, that just means we're done shooting it. I don't anticipate needing any reshoots. I think we got everything we needed. 
I have 45 minutes of the film edited, uh, which means I'm over two-thirds done with the editing. And the rest of it should come together pretty quickly. This stage is actually one of my favorites. A lot of filmmakers will, and especially in Hollywood when you're spending tons and tons of money, they'll storyboard the crap out of a out of a, a film before they even shoot it. And if you don't know what that is, because you're not a filmmaker type or haven't researched what all these things are, you're just simply listening because you're a fan of my films, storyboarding is where they sort of pre-edit the film before they've even shot it, pre-visualize the way they imagine it to be. So they'll almost edit the movie together using drawings. And those drawings act as a springboard from which they can then film the movie. It's a great way to to make the process move faster, obviously, because you can, in essence, map out the entire film. So when you do shoot it, you only shoot the shots you need as opposed to what I do, which is I get tons and tons of coverage, which is to say I shoot it every which way and every angle I can think of and every angle I feel I need over and over again. So we may not get 30 takes of one shot because that's the shot that the storyboards say we need. I'll get a couple of shots from a certain angle, change the angle, and get a couple more. And so what I end up with is a giant jigsaw puzzle. But this is my favorite part. It really is. Because now I have my jigsaw puzzle, and all the pieces are there. They're all laid out on my table. I'm looking at them. And I can't really, I can't look at the box. I guess the script is kind of the box, but uh, it's been mangled and chewed up by the dog because it, it only sort of half exists, and that is in my head, if that makes any sense. I don't know if it does. Stay with me. So I have this jigsaw puzzle before me, and I have all these pieces, and I'm not sure which ones fit where. And here's the hard part, using this jigsaw puzzle analogy, not every piece is actually part of the puzzle. Some of these pieces simply look like other pieces, but they're not quite cut right. If you were to fit them together, they sort of fit. You know, you ever done a jigsaw puzzle and you put a piece together and you're like, I think that works. But then you start looking at it and you realize that the cut is just barely not right. That's like this. Take two or three similar jigsaw puzzles and spill them all on the table and then try to make just one of them. But here's the thing, it's a, that giant puzzle, that, that is what intrigues me the most, because as far as I'm concerned, a film does not exist. A movie is not a thing until you start putting that jigsaw puzzle together in the editing room. And here's the fun I have. I don't necessarily want to pre-edit the thing, because to me, you're taking some of the fun out of it. What I enjoy most while editing is creating that jigsaw puzzle and, and finding the, the picture. And you don't know exactly what it's going to look like. It's almost, it's quantum in that way. Until I observe it, it does not choose to be whatever it's going to be. I must observe it first. And then once observed, that's what it is. Look it up. I love piecing through the footage and finding gems. As a director, I imagine I could easily sit there and obsess over a shot, a la Kubrick, 
until it's perfect. But I don't see that way. I have too much of an ADD mind. I don't see the big picture while we're filming. I don't start seeing it until it actually comes together. And then, like a puzzle, as you add more and more pieces, it becomes easier and easier. The other thing that I find really cool is that sometimes you find the the best shots, the best reactions, the best whatever, accidentally. And if I were just trying over and over and over and over to get that perfect shot because my storyboards say that's what I need, I don't know that I could do it because often, sometimes the accidents are the best things that can happen. That's, that's the thing about this. It's the accidents. It's the little things. It's the performances you weren't expecting that come through that you may not have even noticed until after the fact. That is part of the reason I, I do it this way. I find the true personality of my films comes together in the editing room. And of course, I always say this, a movie isn't a movie until you reach that editing stage. Having a script, you don't have a movie. Shooting a bunch of footage, you don't have a movie. Once you actually start putting it together, now you're making a movie. I am knee-deep within the process of editing. Actually, at this point, I think I'm about chest-deep. Like I said, about two-thirds of the way completed. I have not drowned yet. Uh, once, I'm, once I have drowned, then the movie will be complete. <laughs> it's coming together, and I'm very happy with it. There are little moments that uh, are happening. Beautiful little moments. And I think the main character played in this film by Douglas Sidney who you all should know as Barney Collins from the Wall People. I almost said the X People, but that's X the Fiend from Beyond Space and the Wall People. Don't ask. Uh, Mr. Zidney has given us an amazing performance and created a complex character out of one of my scripts, which often I work with somewhat stock characters. And Mr. Sidney... Douglas has done a fantastic job of taking a character and adding a real depth to him. I mean, I think some of it's in the writing. Uh, I got to take a little credit, but he he's bringing it to life in a way that is quite amazing. I think if you saw Mr. Sidney in, in his previous roles in the Mimiverse, Dr. Collins in Attack of the Moon Zombies and Barney Collins, his father, in The Wall People, you know that Doug has depth as an actor. He brings something to it. And I think in particular, you can see that in uh, the crazy, the crazy obsession he so clearly embodies in The Wall People. I think in this, he simply truly brings it to life and, and proves that he is a very, very good actor. I know that he doesn't listen to this. And if he does, I have to say, I really like working with Doug. But I didn't at first. He has a very specific Dougness to him, which during uh, Attack of the Moon Zombies, and I don't know if this was just the stress of everything, I wasn't I wasn't entirely sure we we clicked uh, working together. Not that he was difficult. I don't know what it was. There was just uh, maybe it was me being intimidated by how good he really is. I don't know. There was just there were times when I was like, I don't know how will I get along with this guy. But having worked together 
several times now and just over time getting to know each other a little better, I think we work together very well. And uh, I think he's one of the most talented actors I've ever worked with. And uh, I'm very proud of the fact that uh, he has done several of my films and I hope to put him in many more. Rachel Grubb is back. She's awesome. Jim Norgard gives the performance of a lifetime in this film. And I cannot wait for you guys to see that because wow, is his character scary. And in a very creepy way, Jim really freaking knocked it out of the park. So I'm very excited for you guys to see where Skeeto Nazi Hunter as the the jigsaw puzzle comes together. But you're still going to have to wait. As of right now, should everything continue going as well as it is, I'm shooting for September 28th to premiere the film. This would allow me to be ready in time for the big October screening season. And uh, I'm already lining up some cool stuff. But uh, September 28th, it's a Wednesday, is what I am shooting for right now. But that is not set in stone. I have not talked to the theater, and I am not done with the film. And I will not talk to the theater until I am done with the film. I never want to set a date and not be ready. And I want to make sure that uh, I get it done with enough time to author DVDs and have, say, I don't know, some lobby cards or something together to make sure when you come to that premiere... And the day that it is released, it is available to the general public. I've always done that, and I will continue to do that. The other thing is that the next couple months are going to be pretty dang busy. Not only are there a whole bunch of screenings and events coming up this this month in June, but there's the Blob Fest in July. The Late Night Double Feature will be screening at Blob Fest. You should come. It's in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. It's a really good time. We'll be screening the giant spider at the Alamo Draft House in Richardson, Texas on June 20th. I will be there to present it. If you are near the area, please come down. It's only five bucks, and I'm going to be showing some classic trailers and newsreels. It's going to be a good time. And I'll be at the Kansas City Crypticon early in June, uh, selling movies and showing the Monster Fan Lake in 3D. And... As the summer begins, I'm sure I will be setting up other screenings, probably with the uh, Ed Wood Grimm's Thursday Night Fright uh, at the Lake Five Theater in Forest Lake. As of right now, if you're listening and you're wondering, hey, when are you coming back to the Highway 18 Outdoor Theater to show a movie? Well, without a new one, I got nothing to show. I haven't spoken to the owner, so... I think we'll be taking a year off from the drive-in. However, in August, we will be screening The Giant Spider at the Stardust Twin in Chatek, Wisconsin. Of course, the Stardust uh, is where we filmed part of The Giant Spider, and Chatek is not too far from Eau Claire. Eau Claire is not too far from the Twin Cities. You should come out. It's probably one of the nicest drive-ins you will ever see. And if you've never been to the freaking drive-in, you need to go to the drive-in. The drive-in is awesome. And of course, the biggest thing, and I know it's ridiculous that I've taken this long to talk about it, but I'm going to talk about it now. The Monster of Phantom Lake, the musical, is complete and ready to go. The original cast album of all the songs in the film has been recorded. It is in the mastering stage. It will be available at the event, which will debut on July 21st at the Mabel Tainter in Menominee, Wisconsin. It's not that far outside of the Twin Cities. It's 
an amazing historic theater that you must see before you die. If you have any interest whatsoever in theater and have never been here, shame on you. <laughs> Seriously, now's your chance to go. It was voted one of the most beautiful theaters in the world by several uh, media outlets. It's unlike any I've ever been in, and it's it's been around for a very, very long time, and it, it's just gorgeous. The building, the, the stage, everything about it. If you are even remotely interested in theater or just like going to plays, you need to be there. The play will be running starting on July 21st. We'll be playing throughout the weekend. So as of right now, we have four performances locked in, one every day. Thursday, Friday, Saturday will be at 7.30 p.m. And on Sunday, a Sunday matinee, I believe at 1.30. To find out information about the Monster Family the Musical and to purchase tickets, which we highly recommend you purchase tickets in advance, go to monsterofphantomlake.com. That has always been the main URL for the film, but we have decided to give it to the musical, simply because the musical needs its own identity online. So we're going to create a website specifically for the musical. And of course, it'll reference the film and send you back there so you can still get to that. Uh, but that you just need to go to sainteuphoria.com. From that website, you will be able to buy tickets. You'll be able to listen to samples of the music. You'll be able to buy the DVD once it's complete. But what you really need to do is attend a performance. The show was written by me, adapted from my screenplay, with some additions by Adam Bowl. Adam Bull is the lyricist composer who came up with all the music and even took the two songs I wrote for the Mimiverse, A Rockin', A Rollin', All the Way Ramblin', and paddling along, and he expanded upon them. He wrote all this amazing music, and it really is truly fantastic uh, in a way that words cannot describe. The, the songs are catchy as hell and fun and funny. Everything you would want out of a musical written from the first Mimiverse film. Adam has been working tirelessly since we started this journey of bringing this fun play to life. He has been the heart and soul of this project. I told him very early on, I wanted to write the script. I wanted to adapt my own script into a stage play. And I wanted, you know, some creative control so that if, say, he wanted to take it in a direction that I felt wasn't consistent with the Mimiverse, I wanted to at least be able to, you know, rein him back in. But he didn't. He understands the spirit. Adam is a great guy. He gets it. He fits very well with the Mimiverse, and in fact, I think I'm going to have to put him in a movie here soon just as a thank you. He took it and ran, and he has been spearheading it all ever since, because I told him that I really just wanted to write the script and that I'd do some art, smaller stuff. I didn't really want to be involved with the production, because I'm not a theater guy. I don't really understand how these things work, because I'm a movie guy, and I know movie acting, theater acting, theater, movies, they're not entirely the same. And I really wanted to go into it almost more as more as a fan and, and someone who is sort of walking into it somewhat blind to, you know, what these actors do with these roles that already exist. What uh, director Mike Cook, yes, Mike Cook, he of the Canoe Cops fame, is directing the show. And you have Ruby Gallinati, who is one of the co-hosts of the Mimiverse Bonfire podcast. 
She is doing some production design and, of course, is doing the lights because Ruby lights. And, uh, you know, the three of them, Mike Cook, Adam Bull, Ruby, they've really been the driving factor behind this. And I've been sort of behind the scenes just doing stuff as I've been needed. And, of course, now it's crunch time. I've been trying to put together a ticket portal to allow people to buy tickets. And, of course, I'll be working on the website and I did all the art and I'll be mastering the the CD once uh, they send me the the mixed files, which should be very, very soon. And then we go from there. So pretty much we have all these screenings coming up. I am working on the Wearskeeto, getting it done. And the month of July belongs to the Monster Phantom Lake, the musical. You should go if you can go, if you can make it work, if you can get to Menominee, Wisconsin, you Yes, you. I'm talking to you again. You. You, my favorite person. You should go. Because I think you'll like it. I know you'll be entertained. And the Mabel Tainter is a cool theater that you, you, should go to and see a show. And if it's your first time, I can't think of a better show to see than the Monster Phantom Lake, the musical. I am excited as hell. And to all the Kickstarter backers out there who may be listening, thank you so much for making this a possibility. Thank you so much for making this a reality. You will receive all of your gifts in due time. In the meantime, I just hope you make it to the show. You. Yes, you. You. I'm talking to you. Go to the show. You'll have fun. You'll leave singing songs and wanting that CD. Wanting to own a piece of that. And then eventually getting the DVD once we uh, put it together. We're going to be filming the show. And um, that will be uh, another thing that will be coming out soon. We're shooting for an October release on that. I want to, ideally, if I can, I would love to have that done by the time we release Wearskeeto. So you could come to the premiere of Wearskeeto in September and also pick up the Monster Family like the musical DVD. The CD will be there, absolutely. Uh, and we'll have other merchandise, too. I think uh, Adam put together a music book uh, and some other cool, fun stuff. But the Monster Phantom Lake, the musical, you must attend. And if you can't, I guess I understand, but I will hold it against you forever. It would be great to see you there. It'd be great to, to have you attend. It'd be great if you could make it to everything that's coming up. But I know that's impossible because it's expensive to run around all over the country. But that's what's happening. We're, we're becoming worldwide. Worldwide! So thank you for that, Mimavites and fans and friends, for making this the phenomenon it is. And thank you. Yes, you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being you. Thank you for keeping me going. And thank you for giving meaning to my ridiculous need to create ridiculous things. I appreciate you. And ultimately, I love you all. Some of you platonically. Some of you less so. <laughs> but I care very deeply about you. And I want you to be safe. I want you to be happy. And I hope that my films, my work, my creative outlet, my huge egomaniacal empire 
brings you just a touch of happiness throughout the day. Because then I feel like maybe I am. I am successful. If I can bring a smile to your face, if I can entertain you just for a little while, then I feel like I have succeeded and my life has some sort of meaning. And even if that meaning is frivolous, so what? Entertainment is important because otherwise all you would do is sit around and work and no one wants that. We still have some fun stuff coming up. First and foremost, Derek Cook of Monster Kid Radio has returned. This month, he sent us a cool little piece that discusses how and why Nazis are the perfect cinematic villain. And we're going to go to that. And then, of course, after that, we'll be back with Chapter 16 of the Canoe Cops vs. the Mummy serial, which is quickly coming to an end. After this, I believe there are only three more episodes to go. After that, I don't know what we're going to do, but I'll come up with something. And then, of course, to close out the show, we have another good-bad joke from Dr. Bob Tesla of Midnight Monster Movies with Dr. Bob and the new official horror host of the Mimiverse. What happened to Cryptosis, you ask? Don't ask. And now, Derek Cook. On behalf of all of us here at Monster Kid Radio, and by all of us, I mean, well, me, I want to congratulate Christopher R. Mim on wrapping production on Wereskito Nazi Hunter a little bit ago. I'm assuming you're still in post-production. I hope it's going well. I can't wait to see the finished movie. But if you want to see some classic monster movies that have some Nazis in them, I have some suggestions for you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Derek M. Cook. I'm the writer, producer, and host of Monster Kid Radio over at monsterkidradio.net, where the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. And we are a big fan of what Chris does. The Mimiverse movies are important films, and they're just a heck of a lot of fun. I look forward to the next one. Where's Keto Nazi Hunter? Should be a blast. Starting the second decade of Mimiverse films, featuring... Well, a Wereskito, hunting Nazis. What is it about Nazis that makes them such great stock villains in some of these movies? Obviously, Indiana Jones went up against some Nazis in a couple of his movies, but Nazis have been in the movies for years, and sometimes it's kind of fun to look at some of the classic monster movies that have a couple of Nazis in them. Not that Nazis are fun, I'm not saying, you know what I mean. Now, the first movie I want to talk about is something called King of the Zombies. Welcome to my humble home. Look, Mr. Summers, I've got to get my aunt off this island. She's been this way ever since we came here. I'm just afraid if we don't get away soon, something dreadful is going to happen to all of us. This movie came out in 1941. I know Mims movies usually are evocative of the 50s, but if you go back, 1941, think about where we were in the world at that time. World War II is going on. It's interesting to have a film in which there is a foreign agent with a German accent working on zombies. And it's really interesting to see this film. It's not as fun as, say, what Mim does, because like I said, this is in the 40s, so it's a little 
straight. It's a little dark in places. I know the movie's billed as a comedy horror, especially because of Mantan Moreland. Let me out of here! Let me out of here! But the Nazi monster movie thing is going on here. And it kind of sort of fed into a 1943 film called Revenge of the Zombies, which is a little bit more overt when it comes to what's going on here in the movie. Dr. Von Alterman is a Nazi trying to make zombies for the Third Reich. How much more on the nose can you get? And how much more entertaining can you get when you've got John Carradine playing Dr. Von Alterman? It's John Carradine. It's great. I want to get away from the zombies for a moment. I'll get back to them here in a second, because also there was a movie in the Universal cycle that involved Nazis and kind of sort of monsters. I'm talking about 1942's Invisible Agent. Now, this features the grandson of the original Invisible Man using the Invisible Man's formula to go undercover, to go overseas and to be a spy for the Allied forces. Cedric Hardwick's in this film. Peter Lorre's in this film. John Hall plays the new Invisible Man or the Invisible Agent. This movie is pretty lighthearted in spots, and it's fun, and it's universal, so it feels so, so comfortable. There's an enemy spy at large, an Invisible Man. It's, it's amazing. You will be of great help to us. Who is this terrifying Phantom Commando? What is his amazing mission? See The Invisible Agent, suggested by H.G. Wells' Invisible Man, starring Ilona Massey and John Hall, with Peter Lorre, Sir Cedric Hardwick, J. Edward Bromberg, Albert Bosserman, in the most amazing story of our times. Ah! Steady now. Don't let him get away. Who is there? How did you know I was going to England? I didn't, but... So but the I... trap was all set, eh? Frank, how can you talk like that? Oh, oh what's this? Uh, it's full of hooks. Uh, oh, they're tearing into me. Okay, that's nice and all, but like I said earlier, Mims movies typically feel more at home in the 1950s, so let's talk about 1955's Creature with the Atom Brain. Just can't get away from zombies, man. I mean, I tried, but they just keep calling me back. Well, at least the black and white ones do. And Creature with the Atom Brain, man, this movie's fun. Richard Denning, one of my mans, or... or one of my mans? How about one of my men? One of my guys from Creature from the Black Lagoon as the lead. There's an ex-Nazi mad scientist radio-controlling atomic-powered zombies. I mean, come on. It's got the atomic monster feel of the 1950s. It's got a little bit of zombies going on. It's got Richard Denning. Fission science creates an electronic monster so terrifying, only screams can describe it. Come back home. Come back home. According to the evidence, Hennessy was murdered by a creature with atom rays of superhuman strength and a creature that cannot be killed by bullets. I said I would live to see you die. 
I just came from the bureau and checked the murderer's fingerprints. His name is Willard Pierce. They let me have it from the files. Petty theft, fraud, three months in prison, tuberculosis. How could a tubercular man have strength enough to break those bars like that? You think that's something? Answer this one. How could a dead man have strength enough to do it? Fantastic, but based on scientific fact. Please. How low do you fly? You will stop all planes and trucks searching for radioactivity. If you do not, many people will be killed. There will be no other warning. Hello, hello, hello. They hung up before I could put a tracer on it. Slow down, Dave. Dave, did they? No. Go out and kill him. Just based on what I know of Wersquito, I'm looking forward to throwing this one on to watch as part of a double feature with Wersquito when the DVD comes out. And I'm going to skip ahead to the movie that I really want to talk about. This is a movie that came out in 1963 and then again, 1968, maybe even as late as the 70s. I'm talking about a movie called The Mad Men of Mandoras. It's directed by David Bradley, starring Walter Stalker, Audrey Kerr, Carlos Rivas, and to continue to show some love to my precious creature from the Black Lagoon, we've got the guy who played Lucas from that film, Nestor Pieva, in this film as well. In fact, one release of this movie is his last credited role. Oh, and the movie stars Hitler's Brain, too. Yeah. Uh, so some Nazis save Hitler's brain. They end up on a small tropical island. And, well, it's a movie. In the diabolical minds of the madman of Bandorus was created the most incredible plot ever conceived to conquer the world. Why did you bring us here, really? In a matter of hours, we will begin the conquest of the world. Phil Day, undercover agent, trapped in the trap he set for the madman of Mandoras. <laughs> Professor Coleman, American scientist, believed his staggering discovery to be a secret. Up to now, anthropine was the only known antidote. The loss or destruction of the formula for this antidote would mean complete annihilation of the world. But he did not reckon with a group of evil men, men who will permit nothing to stop their rule of the world. What unknown force has been created to conquer the world? And which of the madmen pushed the panic button? Somebody's got to get Vorak. I guess it's up to me, Casey. Well, the movie's just barely an hour 15. It's pretty short, and they wanted to put the movie on television, so they had to pat it, fill it, give it some more. So, another 15, 16 minutes were added, and the movie was called They Saved Hitler's Brain. I find it interesting to watch these two movies back to back just to kind of see the difference in filming style, the costumes. You can definitely tell some time has advanced between They Saved Hitler's Brain and Madman of Mandoras. And if you really look, there are some people who say that some of the cars that you see in the film have parts from like 1970s vehicles, which some people think indicate that the extra footage was actually shot in the 70s. I don't know how true that is. 
What I do know is that the extra footage was not necessarily filmed by the same crew. Some film students were brought in and some extra characters were added to the film. Characters that don't really interact with some of the other characters in the movie. It's pretty obvious when you know what you're looking for to see the difference here. That said, it's still kind of a fun movie. No, the acting's terrible. Okay. (laughs) The acting is pretty rough, but you know, there's something about these classic monster movies, these not-so-classic monster movies, that just make us grin, that give us an opportunity to laugh and smile and have a really, really good time. Just like if you think about when King of the Zombies came out in 1941, you think about where movies were in 1963, 1968, and movies like The Mad Men of Mandoras and They Saved Hitler's Brain, they suddenly make a heck of a lot more sense for that audience. There are other movies from this era that have Nazis in them. Things like uh, The Flesh Eaters from 1964, The Frozen Dead from 1966. I think She Demons, uh, 1958's film, might even have some of that on why I haven't seen that in a very long time. And then we get into the 70s and all that, which really has nothing to do with the kind of movies that Mim makes. And I can't wait to see what happens with Wereskito, Nazi Hunter. As a longtime fan of the Mimiverse, it's been exciting for me to see the changes and the growth and the evolution in the films. And I know Wesquito is going to be the best one yet. If you want to hear me talking about classic monster movies, well, and sometimes not so classic monster movies, join me at my Monster Kid Radio podcast at monsterkidradio.net. I'm also on iTunes, Stitcher, and I'm sure you can find us on a couple of other podcatchers as well. We come out every Thursday now, and we are slowly making our way to episode 300, which will be dropping at the end of the year. So I'll see you over there, or I'll see you right back here on Christmas Podcast. Thank you, Derek. You know, sometimes Derek sends these little pieces that we've featured in several episodes of the audio cast, and I listen to them and and how amazingly well they're produced, and I think to myself, man, there's a guy who knows how to podcast. Derek Cook of Monster Kid Radio, monsterkidradio.net, is, in my opinion, one of the best podcasters out there. The man knows his stuff, has a great show, which I love to listen to. He does the one thing that's most important. He entertains, first and foremost, educates, entertains, and uh, he's a really, really crazy nice guy. So, Derek, if you're listening, and I hope you are, thank you so very much, and thank you for all of your contributions to the Mimiverse and uh, for your amazing show. I'm saying amazing a lot again. Didn't I have, like, a drinking game last month over that? It's amazing. Right now, we're going to head over to... Canoe Cops vs. The Mummy. This is Chapter 16 of the ongoing serial written by Stephen D. Sullivan. And don't forget to support Mr. Sullivan by going to his Patreon at CushingHorrors.com. C-U-S-H-I-N-G-H-O-R-R-O-R-S.com. Throw him a couple or 30 or 60 bucks. And let him know you love what he does. And support an independent creator. We independent creators don't make a lot of money doing what we do. We do it for the love. But you know what? Love can only go so far when you have a mortgage to pay. So please, help us out. And and not only Stephen D. Sullivan, who gave us a 19-part canoe cop story, which has been a fantastic and eventually, hopefully, will be released in paperback. But uh, help out Derek Cook, too. He has a Patreon as well. Uh, go to monsterkidradio.net and sign up. Help these folks out. Heck, I do believe that Dr. Bob Tesla of Midnight Monster Movies with Dr. Bob, midnightmonstermovies.com, also has a Patreon. 
You should help him out because he does a great service for the people of Columbus, but also for the Mimiverse. They hosted a 24-hour movie marathon of my films, for Pete's sake. How cool is that? It was a very good event as well. So please, check out these people online, Stephen D. Sullivan at stephendsullivan.com or cushinghorrors.com, Derek Cook of Monster Kid Radio at monsterkidradio.net, and of course, Dr. Bob Tesla at midnightmonstermovies.com. Check them out. Throw them a buck or two. Everything helps. All right. Let's move into the 16th chapter in the Canoe Cops vs. the Mummy ongoing serial. This episode is called Incident Aboard Ship, a.k.a. Doomed. You have to say it that way. You just have to. It's required by law. Here we go. This is the tightest scrape I've ever been in, and it looks like it's about to get even tighter. Did you ever wake up in the proverbial frying pan? Well, that's where I am right now. At this very moment, I'm saying my prayers while I lie on top of a sacrificial altar in the middle of an Egyptian temple. Okay, it's not really an altar. It's a wooden table made up to look like an altar. And it's not really a temple, just an amazing Hollywood replica of one built as a showboat exhibit. But none of that is important right now. What matters is that I'm tied hand and foot to this slab, and Dr. Hawass, this creep that I thought was sweet on me, is standing over me, golden dagger in hand, preparing to plunge the blade into my pounding heart. And no, I am not the heroine in a movie serial or a pinup girl in one of those kinky bondage magazines that they keep under the counter at some sleazy neighborhood convenience store. I almost wish I was. Because the nasty predicament I've woken up in isn't just fantasy and games, it's deadly serious, and I'm the one likely to wind up dead. Hawass reels back with a knife, chanting some arcane gibberish. I struggle like hell trying to break free, but it's no use. Hawass and his Egyptian bimbo have done too good a job with these ropes. The blade of the ancient dagger glints silver in the light of the crescent moon. I know its next stop is straight into the middle of my chest, and then... THWACK! A huge board streaks out of the darkness and smacks Hawass right in the kisser. No, not a board. A canoe paddle. I crane my neck the way the oar came from, and my heart leaps with joy. Rich, I cry, never happier to see anyone in my life. Lieutenant Richard Agar's arrival on the scene couldn't be better timed. Hawass topples like a ten-pin, and the knife falls out of his hand. It soars into the air in a deadly arc, spinning, falling right at me. I try to move out of the way, but I'm tied too tight. Crud, I say, or some similar four-letter word. Thunk! The point of the blade lands on the table about an inch from my right forearm and sticks, standing straight up like a tin soldier. Phew. Hang tough, babe, Rich calls to me. I'm coming. Kill him, the scantily clad woman standing near me cries. She's the ghost of some Egyptian princess that Hawass has summoned up out of the grave or something. Yeah, I know that sounds crazy. Her name is Amunisis, and from what those two were saying before I let on that I was awake, their plan seemed to have been to kill me and stuff Lady Lingerie's spirit into my pert young body. Yeah, nice guys. Around Amunisis's neck hangs the bejeweled Egyptian necklace that Creep Hawass gave me, which I guess was all part of the setup. For a moment, I think the spooky princess is just raving about death and destruction, because her boy Hawass just looks like he's down for the count. Who does she expect to kill Rich? Me? Then I notice the huge shape looming out of the shadows behind my would-be boyfriend. Look out, Rich! I shout, but I doubt he ever hears me. Because before the words have even left my lips, the mummy 
Rahotep was his name when he was alive 3,000 years ago, I guess, grabs Rich in a bear hug. Lieutenant Richard Agar is, without doubt, the best canoe cop in Phantom Lake, and probably one of the finest in the whole world. He's trained in fighting and in top condition. He's got the body of an Adonis, but he's just a pipsqueak compared to the mummy. I mean, this bandaged gorilla busted right through the wall of my room in the anchor's boarding house and kidnapped me, and he did it as easily as a normal person would walk through a wall of tissue paper. Basically, Rich doesn't stand a chance. On his own. I eye the knife sticking out of the table near my right wrist. It looks just close enough. So, while Amonisis is egging her boy on, shouting, Kill him, Rahotep! Prove your undying love for me and kill him! I use the nearby dagger to saw through the rope holding my arm. Snap! Don't worry, that's the rope breaking, not Rich's back. Though it looks like my fella's spine may not be too far behind. Rich is giving it everything he's got, for sure trying to either force the mummy's grip open or slip out of it somehow. But what's a guy going to do against a seven-foot-tall undead monster? Susie Q. Psychopath, meanwhile, is admiring her bandaged goon's handiwork. Her dark eyes gleam murderously in the firelight cast from the brazier set in the middle of the mock tomb. She's so caught up in the wrestling match that she doesn't notice as I cut the rest of my bonds and make a beeline to see how well this golden dagger works on her royal patootie. At least, that's my plan, until creepy Hawass, who's laying face down on the floor, rouses just enough to grab my foot and trip me. I give him a good swift kick in the face for his efforts, which sends him back to dreamland, but that momentary delay is all the princess needs to notice me coming. Amunisis wheels as I stab at her. She grabs my wrist and turns my attack harmlessly aside. Treacherous harlot, she snarls. Says the witch who wants to steal my body, I say, or something that rhymes with witch, anyway. I try to hit her with a left cross, but she grabs that wrist as well. And now the two of us are wrestling mano a mano, me trying to stab her, and her trying to bite, kick, and basically use every other dirty fighting trick any dame ever had in her arsenal. Daughter of a whore and a jackal, she curses. Takes one to no one, I reply. Now, I'm no slouch when it comes to brawling. My dad was in the service and taught me self-defense from the time I could walk. But I guess Princess Pottymouth must have had some combat training, too, because she counters every move I make and forces me to dodge some beauties of her own. While we tussle, Rich is rapidly losing his fight against Tall, Dark, and Gruesome. I can see the desperation in my prospective beau's eyes, and I almost imagine that I can hear his ribs cracking. I have to try to end this, quick, and help him. I faint toward Amonisis's face with my knife, even though she's still got my wrist. She stops the cut easily enough, but that just sets her up for the knee I drive hard into her gut. The air rushes out of her undead lungs in a great whoosh, and she topples backwards. As she does, though, she pulls my knife arm down to her mouth and bites. Hard. Youch! I scream, and despite my best efforts, I drop the golden dagger. It skids across the floor and lands over by Hawass's prone body, while Amonisis and I crash down to the ground together. I roll to my feet, thanking heaven for my judo training, but she's up just as quick. She lunges and tries to claw my eyes out, but I catch her wrist. She intercepts my counterpunch, and now the two of us are grappling again. Amunisis looks like some insane asylum version of Miss Universe, decked out in her flimsy, traditional Egyptian garb. The firelight dances across her golden jewelry, including my necklace, and her flawless tanned skin. Her black hair is long, silky, and straight. Her dark eyes gleam murderously. Foolish mortal, she says, you cannot defeat me. You've worn my necklace, so we are bound together, body and spirit. 
Fighting me is like fighting yourself. Ugh, somebody moans, but it's not me. It's Rich, about to give up the ghost. I have to do something. I pull, twist, and drop to one knee, executing a solid judo throw. Amunaisis sails past me and lands hard on her pretty backside. Guess yourself missed the day we had judo lessons, I say. And, quick as a wink, I yank the necklace from around her pretty throat. Let's see if we're bound together now. My undead opponent whirls and springs to her feet. Before she can do anything else, though, I toss the necklace into the brazier burning in the center of the room. No! The witchy princess cries. She lunges for the fire, but only makes it a few steps before pop, sizzle, the necklace starts to come apart. Amunisis freezes in place, stunned. In just a few seconds, the whole piece of jewelry dissolves into a pile of golden slag and semi-precious stones. Guess that fire was even hotter than I thought. And as the necklace goes... The princess does, too. First, her flimsy garments go up in flames. Then her flawless skin melts away like candle wax. Her rotten purplish flesh sloughs off in long, oozing strips. Her silky black hair turns white and frizzy, and her decrepit gray bones begin to crack and crumble. And at that point, the little witch just fades away as if she were nothing more than a bad dream on a hot summer night. The last things to go are her wicked, gleaming eyes. And then, poof. No more Ammonisis. It's awful, but she totally deserves it. No, screams Ardoth Hawass, who I guess I didn't kick as hard as I should have. Grunts Rich as the mummy, apparently startled by the princess's departure, suddenly lets go of my erstwhile bow. Rich slumps to the floor, looking like he's gone 15 rounds with Rocky Marciano. TKO to the mummy. Kill her, Rahotep! Hawass screams. Kill her! The mummy lumbers away from Rich, right toward me. I back up until that pesky burning brazier blocks my escape. Kill! Hawa screams. I ball up my fists and look that big old mummy straight in his bandaged puss. I may be brawling out of my weight class, but no way Papa Browning's little girl is going down without a fight. But just when the mummy is within arm's reach of me, he pauses. I don't know if he senses my former connection to the Poison Princess, or if he likes my looks or just admires my spunk, but for whatever reason, Rahotep stops dead. This must be my lucky day. He isn't going to kill me. Traitorous dog of a mummy, Hawa says with a growl. It's not too late to complete the sacrifice. And then he's got that dreaded dagger, which I lost, back in his sweaty hands, and he's rushing toward me like a bull going for a red cape. My stomach twists into a fist-sized knot as he barrels in. Sure, I'm tough, but I'm facing a crazed madman with a knife who's just lost the love of his life, and maybe a few past lifetimes as well. To say Dr. Hawass is ticked off would be an understatement. Remember that frying pan I mentioned earlier? Well, heaven help me. Here comes the fire. Dun, dun, dun! We are almost done. There are only three chapters left. Ah, that was a good one. Well done, Mr. Sullivan. That was exciting. I cannot wait to see how this wraps up. I actually don't know. I'm not reading ahead. I'm reading this for the first time as I do this, so that I get the sort of same sense of excitement that you would when you hear it for the first time. I want to thank everyone who contributed to this episode. And again, I want to speak to you. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for being you. Thank you. Thank you for being a part of this grand adventure we call life. Electric word life. That means forever, and that's a mighty long time. But I need to tell you, there's something else. The afterworld. 
by afterworld, I mean after you're done listening to this, whatever world you create for yourself, make it a good one. And of course, I had to do that because I'm from Minnesota and we lost a great artist, Prince. And uh, yeah. Before Dr. Bob comes on to tell us another one of his famous jokes, I have one last thing to say. Be good. But if you can't do that, be good at it. Talk to you next month. Dr. Bob, paging Dr. Bob. <laughs> it is I, Dr. Bob Tesla, with your Mimiverse joke of the month. An elderly couple are having problems with their memory, so they decide to go to the doctor and get things checked out. He checks them and says, well, physically you guys are fine. Maybe it's just you should guys should write things down to help you remember. So the couple go home that night and they're watching TV. And the old man gets up and his wife says, where are you going? And he says, well, I'm going to the kitchen. She's like, well, uh, can you get me a bowl of ice cream? Says, okay, sure. Do you think you should write it down so you can remember? No, I can remember a bowl of ice cream. Well, then I, well I'd also like some strawberries on top. You better write that down. I can remember you want a bowl of ice cream with strawberries. Uh, well, I'd also like some whipped cream on top. You, I know you're going to forget this. You better write it down. He goes, look, I don't need to write it down. I can remember. Goes off into the kitchen. When he comes back 20 minutes later, he hands her a plate of bacon and eggs. She looks at the plate for a moment and says, you forgot my toast. Come out June 11th to the Gateway Film Center when we present a mystery Japanese movie. No one knows what it's going to be. It's just going to be a Japanese movie and it's going to have a monster in it. Hey, tickets are free, so you spin the wheel, you take your chances. Check us out at www.midnightmonstermovies.com. Midnight Monster Movies.